grace, peace, and mercy to you from God our Father and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. This is a recording of the Key Role Film Society, and I am Neil Wemus. I am a pastor. I am going to be a pastor as of Sunday at St. Paul Lutheran Church in Ida Grove, Iowa. Today's podcast, we are following up the podcast I did last week. If you tuned in last week, I did a podcast where I ranked the greatest fandoms in all of film and television. And I came down to a top three. And those top three are the ones that determine the three movies that I am reviewing this week. And so the top three fandoms were, went number one, was or number three was Star Trek. Number two was Harry Potter, and number one was the Star Wars universe. And so as such, we I am going to review a movie from each of those three film franchises. Bef- but before I get to that, um, I'm going to give a little bit of an update on some stuff here. Uh, I don't know if, how many of you guys have been paying attention, how many of you are big into renting movies. If you're listening to this, there's a possibility you do. Um, if you've been paying attention, there have been some pretty uh, solid movies coming out on uh, DVD, on digital release in the recent weeks. So I'd like to kind of highlight some of these movies that are coming out. Um, one that I just saw had come out today. Okay, so here we go. Uh Let's see here. Uh, first movie I got on my list, there's the movie uh, Fences. Uh, there's Hacksaw Ridge, Manchester by the Sea, Moonlight. All of those movies are movies that are nominated uh, for Best Picture. The Oscars, in case you do not know, is this coming Sunday. Alright, so... Um, just so you know, so that's Sunday. So if you want to catch up on some of those movies, um, several of them, a good chunk of them, are available on Amazon Prime for you to watch if you'd like. In addition to those movies, another movie that came, a couple other movies that came out on, uh, Blue, on digital release this week. Um, another one is called, is a movie called The Edge of Seventeen. I think I'm probably going to review that next week. I think I'm going to do Edge of Seventeen. And um, I'm not sure what else I'm going to do with that. But I do know I'm going to review Edge of Seventeen. And maybe some other, something else with it. Um, but that just came out on digital um, release. Which is a really, really good movie. I loved it. Um, another one that came out, Moana. Or Mona, sorry. Uh, which was an animated movie, had the voice of The Rock in it. Uh, That came out pretty recently. Uh, John Wick is another one on there. There's a whole bunch of movies have come out uh, that, you know, if you're looking for some new movies to check out, there's some good stuff there. Um, A really good TV series that I started watching lately was the show Legion, which is based off of the X-Men character from Marvel Comics named Legion. The show is so psychotic, so messed up. It's not going to be for everyone, but I do encourage um, you to at least give it a try. Some of you are going to absolutely love it the way I do. 
I'm addicted to it. I can't wait to the next episode. So, with all of that in mind, we are going to roll right in to the first movie review and analysis. And you probably could get an idea as to what it was based on that opening music, which was known as Enterprising Young Men, which is the name of the soundtrack piece. And that is from Star Trek Eleven, which... And so... As we transition into that, um, here is a trailer from that film. Alright, so there you go. You heard uh, the trailer from uh, Star Trek that came out in 2009, uh, starring Chris Pine and um, Zachary Quinto and a number of other people. Uh, the movie that came out was... Okay, I'm going to give a little precursor on this. Uh, I am not as big of a Star Trek fan as others, and so you have to take that with a grain of salt. So I, the things that a lot of the diehard Star Trek fans did not like about the movie probably won't bother me on account of the simple fact that I am not a Star Trek guy. But, and that's not to say I don't like the, any of the movies or I don't like any of the TV shows I do. I'm just not as big of a fan as some of the others. So with that in mind, I enjoyed the movie that came out in 2009. I've seen it several times. It's one that I'm able to watch multiple times, so I just flat out enjoyed it. Uh, you know, I liked the story. I liked it from the beginning. I liked the music. I liked the look of it. Um, very good, you know, very, very good use of uh, digital cinema, you know, digital filming. Uh 
it's just it's a very nice crisp movie and it's you know when we talk about the star trek universe the star trek films i think this is a movie that i think so wonderfully highlights a philosophical transition in our culture Okay, so the first Star Trek movies came out back in the 60s, right? The show did. Um, the books as well. And the movies came out in the early 70s, began coming out before Star Wars even. And the original Star Trek was a very, very much... Uh, a very modernist show. Now, you're sitting there thinking, what do you mean by modernist? It's futuristic, Pastor. Pastor, I mean, we don't have the Starship Enterprise and stuff like that. You're right, we don't. That's not what I mean when I say modernist. Uh, modernist is a worldview. Every single one of us, every single human being has a worldview. And you could hear in that combination of the two, that phrase, that it's, it's how you view the world. Now, a lot of factors go into your worldview. I mean, something it could be something as simple as to who your family was, who your parents, uh, what town were you built in, what, um, you know, what state were you born in, things like that. Um, what team do you cheer for? Which and that probably affects the team you cheer for. And what team you cheer for affects your worldview. Uh, you know, right now I live in Ida Grove, Iowa, and I live here, and I've only been here for just over a week and a half. Um, I'm actually just actually getting close on to two weeks I've been living here, uh, and while I live here, and I'm gonna prob I'm gonna be going to a lot of games and stuff like that. O A B C I G is not my school yet. I'm sure it will be eventually, but at this point, my heart isn't quite that point. But I will admit that at the t end of my time when I was in Sibley Ocheden, when I was at Ocheden, I cheered for Sibley Ocheden Generals, and I. I felt myself becoming a fan. Before that, I was a fan of Ankeny High School Hawks. Um, that's where I went to high school. That's where I graduated from. And I still have a love for them. And I still have a love for the Generals. And I have a love for the HMS Hawks. And eventually, I'm going to have the same for OABCIG Falcons. And the reason is, is because that's where I'm at. It affects how you view it. And when you cheer for a certain team... But the thing is, it's because I'm cheering for the perspective of a pastor... I'm probably not going to have the bitter rivalries as I would if I were growing up at the school and I was going to that school. And so, like I said, you're, there's a lot of things that go into your worldview. And a big part of your worldview is affected by when you were born. So there's three major eras of thought, right? There is the modernist, and this is specifically speaking to Western culture. Or Western civilization. Um, if we were talking about Southeast Asia, you know, China, um, Japan, Korea, you know, Russia, even parts of Russia, uh, this would be a completely different conversation. Same thing with the Middle East. Uh, but when I'm talking about is East Western civilization, I'm talking about Europe, I'm talking about the United States, um, so North America. Um, there have been three major eras, and that's pre-modernity. Pre-modernity arguably would be pretty much anything uh, prior to the Enlightenment. So pretty much everything leading up until the 16th century. 
pre-modernity had a worldview that uh, looked at, for when it came to authority, it looked to outside of itself. It looked to um, sacred text, it looked to the church, um, it looked to the government or whatever. It looked outside of itself, looked to nature, whatever it may be. That was the source of its authority. That is um, the modernist worldview. And this held up until shortly after the Reformation. Uh, when the Reformation happened, Martin Luther, you know, I'm a Lutheran and I am a, a child, a descendant of the Reformation. And, but the thing was, was that Luther did was he challenged the authority of the church, but he did not challenge the authority of the scriptures. The thing is, is though, is that people after him did. And so they, when they, the, the challenging of the authority of the church began this kind of ripple effect that set up what is known as modernity, modernism. Modernism held to the idea that truth could be found inside of you, specifically with reason, with your intellect, with your mind. Um, if you could hear it, see it, feel it, touch it, sense it, you know, any of your five senses, if you could detect it, that's how you came across truth. Truth was determined, was in the eyes of the beholder, all right? So that is the modernist. And... Um, the modernist is very structured. It is, you know, and like I said, very, very, very hardwired with scientific method, things like that. But here's the thing is that the modernist, one of the things that the modernist and the pre-modernist um, has in common is the belief that there is a such thing as truth. The difference is where truth comes from, all right? So the first Star Trek, the original Star Trek films were very heavily modernistic. Um, and it very much comes through in his shows. And, the, and I'm going to get to a little bit more how you could see this contrast. Pre-modernity, or post-modernity, sorry, post-modernity, is really kind of came to be, started building itself in the 60s. And specifically in reaction to the arms race, the Cold War, um, you know, Vietnam, things like that, all kind of played a role in the triggering of post-modernity. But post-modernity slowly built its steam up, just like any sequence of thought. No um, worldview ever built up overnight. They all take time. The postmodernist um, would say, to define it is a postmodernist is one, is, it's in, postmodernity is incredulity against the meta-narrative. I believe that was the quote, or the definition I was given in school. Basically, it's the idea they do not like people telling them their story. They, they love narrative. They love stories. But they don't want people to tell them their story. And they don't like... And so, 
And they believe that truth is determined by your own story. And you kind of determine your own story. And so what really is, is that there really is no truth. Truth is relative. Truth is relative to where you are. And this is this could be seen all over our culture. I mean, the whole transgender issue is actually ultimately post-modernity at its consequence. Post-modernity is all about your narrative determining. And it's actually... Well, po- um, most of most post-modernity lets the community desert, decide it, but I think post-modernity is getting fine-tuned a little bit to the point that it's not really the community anymore, it's the individual that determines truth. And so in your narrative, for somebody who is a transgender, who believes that they are a male, even though they have a female body, um, female organs and all that stuff, their narrative, their story tells them that they are a, a man even though they have a female body. Or same thing, vice versa. And that is um, very much of what post-modernity is. So, I go through this whole diatribe, this whole uh, conversation because of the fact that the two star, 2009 Star Trek movie was a movie that, when you compare it to the original Star Treks, you are seeing the differences between post-modernity and modernity. And this really gets highlighted in the conflicts of Spock. Throughout the movie, you talk you hear about... I mean, the major plot point is about Spock... Struggling with his emotion. Spock is emotionally compromised. And you have the whole Vulcans who are very anti-emotion. Very, you know, logic, logic, logic. No emotion. And you get to the end of the movie, you have this little exchange uh, between Leonard Nimoy Spock, so old Spock, and Zachary Quinto Spock, the new Spock. And and Leonard Nimoy says, put Spock, I'm going to tell you, put away emotion. Or put away logic this time. Do what feels right. That quote is postmodernism in a nutshell. A major element of postmodernism. Very, very much about the narrative, which in your narrative is very much determined by your emotions, by your feelings. And like I said, there is a huge desire for narrative. I mean, that was one of the things, and I will admit to it, I have a lot of post-modernity in my thinking. And, and probably one of the reasons why Star Trek 2009 appealed to me. Because the narrative, the story... In the new Star Trek is much stronger than some of the others. And that appealed. And I think that appealed to the general audience. Which is why I think Star Trek saw a light, little bit of a revival amongst general audiences. And so this is what you have going on in there. And this battle between logic and emotion. Logic is, you know, 
the whole idea of doing what is logical is so heavily um, modernist. And so, and so like I said, it's kind of an interesting little contrast. And uh, I don't know if I'm going to get into, I don't think I'm going to get into the merits of logic versus emotion in this uh, podcast. But it's worth thought about, and there is, and there's a whole bigger discussion in there. You know, the do what feels right, and uh, I've covered in other podcasts, but the philosophical foundation of such quotes, do what feels right, it's disturbing where that came from. Um, and it's definitely worthy of another discussion, but it's definitely a major worldview in our, our culture. Um, emotion is what is running the game in our entire culture. Whether you're talking about the left or you're talking about the right. You see it in the right with um, the rise of Donald Trump. Uh, Donald Trump feeds on fear. He feeds on negative emotions. That's how he got elected. That's why he keeps his popularity. He feeds into those negative emotions. He's feeding into the negative emotions regarding the media. He knows they're there, and he's feeding on it. Um, the left is doing the same thing. They're feeding on the fears of the general population, the fears of what Donald Trump might do. And so fear, emotion is the, is the running game in our culture. And I, I think to some degree that's always true. Um, rather than reason, rather than logic, um, and I will say that, you know, living by logic alone is probably not a good way to go either. Uh, it's, life is a lot messier than that, but it's, like I said, the two movies really wonderfully contrast the differences between the way the world thought in 1970 and the way it thinks now. Uh, I like the original, I like the new 2009 Star Trek movie, um, I would like to probably also go and do Wrath of Khan some point. Um, the famous quote in Wrath of Khan, the needs of the f many outweigh the needs of the few. Uh, that is, there is a major philosophical conversation right in that little quote. People love it, but it's not actually that, it's actually a very bad quote, you know. Uh, deal with that maybe at another time. Uh, Star Trek, you know, like I said, I'm not saying that you can't watch these movies when I talk about these worldview issues. Uh, but this is why, this actually is exactly why I do this podcast, is because there are movies that have worldviews that are challenging, that are problematic, and <clears throat> we have to be careful with them. And I want to lead people to, you know, be discerning of them. Uh, do I, in terms of any Christian worldview, I will say, straight up say, um, as far as I can tell, Star Trek does not have a Christian worldview in its films. I've not come across any explicitly uh, Christian worldview, and part of that reason is, or even unintentional imagery, um, maybe you could use in the first movie, you could maybe talk about the father um, sacrificing his life, his, his life for his... Um, wife and child and all these other people. I mean, you could kind of go into that, but it's... 
Um, I that's about all I could think of. Uh, and I think the reason is is because um, Star Trek is thoroughly atheist. It's a thoroughly atheistic um, film and television sh- franchise. And so that's why you're not going to see those um, Christian worldviews even accidentally um, tripping into the story. So uh, with that, we're going to move on to the next movie on our list. And the next one we are going to do is, I'm not going to go, it seems like I might be going in order on these top three movies, but I'm not. I'm actually kind of going a little, um, actually never mind, I'm going to go in order. I lied. Changing mine right in the middle of my recording. So we're going to move into the number two movie franchise, or fandom. And the movie we're going to look at is Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban. And so with that, I'm going to play a trailer from that for that film. I live and breathe the world. Turn to page Alright, there you go. That was the trailer for Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban. Uh, the Prisoner of Azkaban is the third in the Harry Potter franchise. So the character of Harry Potter is reaching the age of um, 13 years old, which in our lives that would be junior high. He's officially a teenager. So I want you to go back to when you were in junior high. What was that like? Well, I'm thinking back to when I was 13 years old. I was in the 7th grade. I went to Parkview Middle School in Ankeny, Iowa. And I remember it not being so good. I remember... um, 
struggles I had with a person who was a good friend, who was a friend of mine through elementary. I remember getting, I remember getting into a, I think I got into like four or five fights that year, uh, with different people. I'm dealing with bullying, dealing with people who are just nasty and mean. And I say that because that's what you get in the Prisoner of Azkaban. The Prisoner of Azkaban is an interest. It's what I love with the the Harry Potter f- franchise is such a well written franchise because you're watching these movies and they're maturing with the character. So you watch the very first Harry Potter movie, and it's imaginative, it's magical, it is awesome. And, you know, going back to that discussion about post-modernity, Harry Potter just so fits right into the wheelhouse of post-modernity. Post-modernity loves enchantment. It loves narrative. It loves community-oriented stories. And you have that with Harry Potter. And I like that, too. That's going into my post-modernism. I like the fantastical stories. I like those magical, that enchantment. Um, I like the um, story-driven films. And I and again, I like community. I, I like that community idea. And, and by the way, community... Be careful of this, not communitarianism, but the con- the thought of community is a very Christian idea. And if you Lutherans doubt me, go look at the third article of the Large Catechism and read Martin Luther talk extensively about the importance of the Christian community. But anyways, uh, going back to this, as you watch through Harry Potter, it's, it's growing up. Like I said, that first one is fantastical. It's awesome. It's, it's all wonder. You're meeting these new friends, kind of like you do when you first get into school. And, you know, it's kind of doing, I mean, it's kind of like they're lumping in all the experiences of going into elementary into one year. Then 12 years, 12, 12 years old, second year, Chamber of Secrets, you still have a little bit of that enchantment going, but now you're going to, things are going to get, starting to get a little bit scary, but you still feel a little safe. Then you get to the third movie. And this is the junior high experience. And all of a sudden, things are truly getting scary. Things are getting dark. You have the Dementors coming in, ripping away all of the good, the happiness over its victims. And then you have the you have the character especially of Draco Malfoy and his buddies Malfoy not Malfoy Malfoy and his buddies just being a bully especially being nasty to Hermione and you see the bullying the nastiness revving up just as it is in junior high you have even kind of a physical bullying between them. And, you know, you had, I mean, you had this in the other movies, but it really jacked up in Prisoner of Azkaban. And I think more so than even the later movies. And, you know, I think this very wonderfully shows what happens when you go to junior high. Um, The world starts to become scarier. Things become less easy. 
And so there's a theme, this running theme throughout Prisoner of Azkaban that I kind of was... Two running themes. One is definitely the the issue of fear. And it's like I said, when you get to middle school, it's, it's scary. High school's scary too. But I think middle school ends up playing scarier because... Um, what you have in middle schools, you know, I'm a, as a pastor, I teach confirmation, and I get to work with kids of all different ages. I found, in my opinion, fourth grade is like the best grade to teach. And the reason is, is because these kids are starting to get smart, and they're starting to learn, and they're, they actually like learning. You get into the junior high kids, sixth to eighth grade kids, it's, they know they're starting to know stuff, but they don't know realize that they don't know everything. They're starting to get cocky. They're starting to get arrogant. And not to mention their bodies are going through all these changes. They don't know how to handle it. They don't know how to deal with it. And so there's all kinds of conflict in them. And, they're, and they kind of get nasty. They kind of become a problem. They kind of, I mean, you know, I love them, but they're, they could become a pain. And when they, you know, once they get to high school, they kind of get over that, and they're starting to mature. You know, youth, high school youth are a lot of fun to teach too, but they do have a little bit of remnants of that middle school thinking, which is why they're not always so eager to learn, like a fourth grader might be, uh, fourth or fifth grade. But you know, in this, so the thing is, like I said, when they're in middle school, because of just the nature of things, I mean, as, as a pastor, I hear about bullying, I hear about the things that are going on, and. You listen to it, most of the bullying doesn't really happen to juniors and seniors in high school. I'm sure it does, but I mean, it's not as often. The height of it is 7th to ninth grade. That is the worst period for bullying. And I don't find it hard to believe because for me, when I was in school, the worst, some of the worst periods in my life were 7th and ninth grade. Now, granted, I think I had some... Uh, extra complexities, and I could definitely relate with this with Harry Potter. Um, you know, Harry, when he goes to the school, I mean, he he was originally in a, probably a typical school in England. And all of a sudden, he's thrown into this world, and everything's so different. And I kind of write, I relate to that because um, I moved from, I moved, we moved from Moorhead, Minnesota, and we moved down to, um, to Ankeny. And I left behind my mom. My parents were divorced. And so there's a lot of emotion that I was carrying with. I was leaving behind what I knew. I left behind friends. Um, I left behind family. And I left behind my mom. And that was difficult. And I know it was difficult for all of us. And that made um, my adjusting, I think, a little bit more difficult. And by the time we got the... You know, the point when you're supposed to get you're supposed to get things going, uh, you're in junior high and things are complicated. And so this is what you got with Harry Potter. You got with Harry's and you know, he already has a pretty harsh home at life, life at home, and I'm sure that, that um you know those eleven and twelve year old years were better because he was away from them. But when he gets to that thirteen years old, things get scary. And he does have pain. He lost his parents, you know, they were murdered. And, you know, here he's learning that his parents were betrayed. And that, that hits to an even deeper emotion. 
And the thing is, is that there's a lot of kids out there that have so much pain, so much hurt. Um, it's... The things that you hear that happen to kids is... You know, one thing, you know, my parents are divorced and that was difficult. But one thing I do take pleasure is that both of my parents loved me and they care for me. And um, I never f felt afraid to go home. Unless I did something wrong and I was trying to hide what I did. In that case, yeah. <laughs> every I think pretty much every kid went through that one. But, but to be afraid because you just have downright rotten parents. Or whatever it might be. And nowadays you throw on social media and you're afraid because you want to go onto the computer because there's some things to go onto the computer and see. And you want to catch up with your friends. But to catch up with your friends means to go through the people who are not your friends who are just nasty and mean. And so in Harry Potter, the Prisoner of Azkaban, there's a, there's a theme that I think is running counter to this theme of fear, this theme of bullying that goes with being a middle schooler. And I'm going to pull up this quote, and it's from Dumbledore at the very beginning of the movie. So in this movie, you have these Dementors who rip happiness from you and just fill you with fear. And it says, and there's this part where he says, it's not in the nature of a Dementor to be forgiving. But you know happiness can be found even in the darkest of times when one only remembers to turn on the light. That's the quote. And by the way, just as a note, uh, this was the first movie uh, where they switched up the actor for uh, Dumbledore. Uh, the actor of Dumbledore in this one, I'm trying to find the name here. So in this one, he was played by Michael Gambon. In the previous film, it was played by Richard Harris. And I thought it was, it was actually, I mean, it's sad of why they had to do the change. Uh, Richard Harris died in between Chambers, Secrets, and Prisoner of Azkaban. So there's, you know, there's that sadness. But it's one of those things that actually worked well for the films. Um, Richard Harris was the perfect Dumbledore for those first two movies. The first two movies had that childhood innocence that was perfect for Dumbledore in that film. In Prisoner of Azkaban, uh, the adult themes, the darker realities of life and of the world begin getting introduced slowly and gradually. And Michael Gambon's Dumbledore uh, very much um, does that role better in that situation. But as, anyways, going back to the theme of light, turning a light on, when there's no happiness. The very first scene of the movie is Harry underneath his bed reading this book and he's turning on the light on his, um, his wand so he could read. The light in a darkness. And this keeps going on throughout the, um, 
throughout the film. And this is actually a very universal theme, but it's also very a Christian one. There's definitely a universal theme around the world, this theme of light and darkness, because all of us know what it's like to be in the dark. Dark can be scary. In the right conditions, darkness is scary. Now, someone's like, I'm not afraid of the dark. It's like, maybe. But in the right situation, I'm pretty certain that darkness makes something scarier. So, hypothetically, you know, a bright blue shiny day, you go out for a drive in the middle of the night when there's no stars or moonlight and it's raining. What do you prefer? Or better yet, rainy rainy day in the day or a rainy day at night. It does it affects the differences in the driving. Because darkness affects our sight. We are not accustomed to the dark. Here's one. I thought this was just a, fun, a goofy example. But you're lying in bed at night. You wake up and, and, you re, and somebody says, there's a pile of Legos on the floor in between you and the bathroom. It's dark out. You might say, you know, I'm a grown man and I'm old enough to just wet myself. Because I'd rather do that than walk on those Legos. If there is no light, if it's a bright daylight, like, oh, I could walk around the Legos. It won't be so painful. Darkness affects things. It's we, everybody understands this. You know, the next movie I'm going to go into is Star Wars. Talk about the light side versus the dark side. It's a very common theme. But it's also, like I said, it's very biblical. When we live in a world where we are afraid, where we're getting beaten by the world in many and various ways, the world doesn't want you happy. The world wants you miserable. And the world has so many ways to let it happen. Now, I'm not going to sit here and lie to you and tell you that if you become a Christian, then your life is going to be easy. That's not true. That is utterly false. The Bible shows evidence after evidence after evidence that, in fact, becoming a Christian, the world will be harder. But here's the thing. Being a Christian allows you to endure the darkness of this world. In the early church, there is a tradition that the very beginning of the service, they they would meet in they meet in catacombs. They would meet in the early early hours of the morning or late at night when it was just pitch black. And the church would all gather around, and. Nothing would be lit. And one person would start to come into the church and they'll have this single candle. And this is still reflected in evening prayer in Luther's service book. But they'd have this one candle. they say, Jesus Christ is the light of the world. 
the light no darkness can overcome. He walks forward. He stops in the middle. Stay with us, Lord, for it is evening, and the day is almost over. And then they keep they walk forward a little bit more. They get to the front of the church. He says, Let the light scatter your dark the darkness and illumine your church. And then he goes to the front of the church and he lifts that candle high and he says, Joyous light of glory on the immortal Father, heavenly, holy, blessed Jesus Christ. We have come to the setting of the sun, and we look to the evening light. We sing to you, O Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, for you are worthy of being praised with pure voices forever. Oh, Son of God. Okay, I'm not going to go much farther because I'm trying to do that from memory. But that is what's from known as, and I might have got that all a little bit mixed up. I apologize. But that last hymn is known as what is called the Fool's Hillaron. It is the oldest, one of the, it's pretty much the oldest hymn that we have in existence. And I bring this all up because the reason they did this was this was in the midst of the times of persecution. They were hearing day after day of people that they loved and they adored who were being killed because they were confessing that Jesus Christ rose from the dead and they would not deny it even in the face of death. Horrible things happened to so many hundreds and thousands of Christians. And so they came in that darkness and that single light would come into the church to remind them what it says in John chapter 1. Let me read this as I pull it up. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life. The life was the light of men. And listen, the light shines in the darkness. And the darkness has not overcome it. Let's go to John chapter 8. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness but will have the light of life. <coughs> See, in the darkest of places, the light of Jesus still shines. No amount of darkness, no amount of evil can overcome our God.
In the movie Prisoner of Azkaban, it's got this theme of light. Overcoming the darkness. And what does it mean by light? What is the light is referring to? I'm not going to say that Harry Potter was trying to claim that this was Jesus. Although I do believe that there are intentional Christian themes in the Harry Potter franchise. Um, the creator of the books, uh, J.K. Rowling, is a Christian. A liberal Christian, granted, but she is indeed a Christian. And I and whenever I get to uh, the Half-Blood Prince Part 2, or it's not Half-Blood Prince, uh, sorry, it's the last movie. Whenever I get to the last film, um, I will really show really, really strong Christian themes in that film. But I think some of the stuff comes throughout the story, and I, I'm not going to say that this is one of those, but it might be. That this theme of light in the darkness, that's a theme of Scripture. The theme in the darkness, when happiness has all gone away, we turn to the light. Where is the light found? Psalm 119. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. I have sworn an oath and confirmed it to keep your righteous rules. I am severely afflicted. Give me life, O Lord, according to your word. Accept my free will offerings of praise, O Lord, and teach me your rules. I hold my life in my hand continually, but I do not forget your law. The wicked have laid a snare for me, but I do not stray from your precepts. <coughs> your testimonies are my heritage forever, for they are the joy of my heart. I incline my heart to perform your statutes forever to the end. And again, that began with those words. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. When we read the word, when we call to mind the blessings of the promise of baptism, when we are in the midst of suffering, when we are being treated horribly, when this world is beating us down, when we are afraid, when we are being smothered, by darkness, we turn to his word, which says that he created you. That's a big deal. You have value. And I was just heard from somebody, that a member of mine, that not one of her children, but it was... You know, I hear about kids are getting bullied, and I... Heard, I've heard it so many times from our kids, junior high kids especially. And how do we deal with that? You know what I say? Don't tell them, you know what, you're a special girl. They might be. But you don't say that. They might not believe you. This is what I would say. Tell them this. You are created by God. And for that reason, you are infinitely valuable. Understand, not because of anything you have said, done, look like, but anything. You have infinite value. 
Because God created you. And that value is shown even more when you know that Jesus Christ, God's very own Son, suffered unspeakable pain and was killed on a cross that you might live. Not because you're valuable. Not because of anything in you, but because you are created, you are beloved by God. And no one I don't care who they are. I don't care if they're the best athlete in your school. I don't care if they're the smartest kid, although they're showing they're not the smartest kid by acting like this, if they are. I don't care who they are, what they have done. They can't take that value from you. That word is given to you by the Most High God. No one has the authority to take that. And for us Christians, when the world wants to beat you and tear you down, the light is this. I am baptized into Christ. And you devil, whoever you may be, you can't take that away from me. You can't take that happiness from me. That is the light of the world in which we are clothed. Cool stuff. So, one more movie. You feel like, boy, that should be a good place to end, and you got 50, I'm at the 54 minute mark. Am I gonna do? I'm gonna definitely go over an hour, but I'm gonna go into the Star Wars one, and we are gonna hit Return of the Jedi. And so, with that, let's hear the trailer for Return of the Jedi. Is Darth Vader my father? Must face Darth Vader again. There is still good in him. The Emperor's made a critical error. The time for our attack has come.
Alright, so that is a, a modernized version of a trailer from uh, for Return of the Jedi. Return of the, the Star Wars franchise is, like I said, it is the biggest franchise in all of cinema. And I met, said it before, it is the biggest fandom. Nothing compares it to it. Harry Potter is trying, is trying to move up to it, but it cannot get even close to Star Wars. And Star Wars just keeps expanding its lead uh, with the recent movies. But it all began with that original trilogy. That original film. The original film was just groundbreaking special effects. The second movie was just a masterpiece. Incredible cinematography. Great story. Good dialogue. Uh, one of possibly the best film score in the history of cinema. So much good going on in that movie. And then came Return of the Jedi. How does it match up? Well, here's the thing. Return of the Jedi is so close to being as good as Empire Strikes Back. But I believe it makes critical errors within the story, in the filmmaking, that keeps it from being as good. But still, even with that, it is still one of the greatest movies ever made. Return of the Jedi is... The weakness that I'm going to speak... The one weakness in this movie is really comes right down to the Ewoks. And the reason is, is because it disrupts what the movie has set up. The movie has so many good moments in it. Um, you have the first introduction of Luke when he's walking in to Jabba's palace. And he's got the black robe and he does the force choke on the, the guards. And you could tell that this is a different Luke. A lot has changed since, that la since Empire Strikes Back. He's more powerful, he's more confident... A lot has changed with him. And that's just the first great visual. Uh, you have the, the battle on the, you know, the carrier where they're bringing them to the Sarlacc pit. And again, good battle and the explosion. They did not love the inclusion of the mouth that they did in the new versions. I think they kind of took away from the imagination. I don't think it looked as good. It honestly looked a little bit like Audrey 2 um, from Little Shop of Horrors. I expect they're also going to go, Feed me! You know, Come on, Seymour! I'm one bad mo- Okay, sorry. I was about to go into a little bit more Little Shop of Horrors. Little Shop, Little Shop of Horrors! <laughs> Anyways, that's what I kind of think whenever I see it. They probably could have done that. A I think they probably could have left that mouth thing out. Uh, I'm okay with that musical number that they added in. Uh, but anyways, then you ha you get introduced. You know, the f you, know you have uh, Vader arriving on the Death Star. When that happens, that's a good shot, good scene. When you have the Emperor 
arriving on the Death Star. Again, well done. You finally see this ominous villain. You've heard about him throughout the entire films. You did hear about him in A New Hope. Even if it was for a brief moment, you heard about him. And you realize that Vader and, um, is but a pawn to him. And you find this ultimate villain. And by the way, this is following up the biggest reveal in the history of film. That Vader is in fact Luke's father. And Luke goes and visits uh, Yoda to confirm it. And it turns out to be true. And... Again, the death scene of Yoda is actually a well-done scene. Um, I mean, so much this movie does well. And the thing, like I said, that throws it off is the Ewoks. Because this movie is at many times actually downright artistic, especially, especially at the end, on the Death Star, when Vader and Luke are fighting. It's just... Awesome cinematography. So, and it's such an awesome one because of the Empire Strikes Back. Empire Strikes Back set that scene up so wonderfully. Um, Empire Strikes Back, the battle is cold. There's no emotion. You just have this, these blues and reds. It's like, not a lot of music. It's just cold. Nothing, no emotion. It's, Luke just sees that Vader is the bad guy and he's got to do something to stop the bad guy. You have Vader. He knows who Luke is. But he's just testing it out and he is hiding what he knows, what he feels. Because it doesn't get revealed until the very end of the battle. What's going on? It's beautiful cinematography. Great directing. And that goes into the whole theme of Empire Strikes Back. I mean, it starts out on Hoth. A snow-covered planet. It's cold. There's nothing. There's no life. There's dead. It feels... Everything feels dead. And... The battle on Cloud, uh, Cloud City, when Luke and Vader are fighting, that's got that same thing. But it's interesting, it's the way the movie ends, Empire Strikes Back ends with them on board of this hospital ship. And even though they're in space, the coloring of the film feels like things are starting to get warmer. And so then you get into Return of the Jedi. And it starts out with the Death Star, but it goes to um, Tatooine. Tatooine may indeed be a desert. It's dry, but it's warm. And you have the whole thing, the death of Yoda. And everything starts to get warmer. And there's starting to be more and more emotion building. And like I said, it sets up that battle between Luke and Vader. Which the colors, the green, getting the green lightsaber to the red lightsaber. I think wonderfully was done to convey the change. This is emotion-driven. This isn't Luke trying to f test out his father. At one point, Luke is trying to get his father to be a good guy. You know, come back to the light. 
Vader is conflicted. He's trying to prove he's not conflicted. There's so much raw emotion, and it's conveyed in it. And the music that um, John Williams composed for that scene just, oh, just radiates that. You just and here. I'll actually play it. I got it right here on my um, laptop. Listen to this. Just listen to this music. So there in that music, you hear the darkness, the conflict, the emotion of it. It's so, it's such a great scene. Everything that happens in that, up on the dark, Death Star is so good. The end of the, and the consent, things are getting warmer. Even on that Death Star, which the first Death Star was very cold, lifeless. In this one, there's getting to be more and more life. Meanwhile, the main battle is on, um... You know, on the moon planet, on Endor, and you have the <coughs> the green, you have the trees and all that stuff. That was good. Where that's happened, again, more life, you're feeling warmth. And then the end of the movie, when they've defeated Vader, they defeated the Emperor, they def destroyed the Death Star. You have this huge celebration and this wonderful music. Again, I'm going to play that music. Uh, hold on a second here.
And so you hear that music. It's so joyful. I'm, I actually listen to that music even... I still tear up because John Williams is awesome. I mean, you look... And you take the whole scope of the Star Wars story. Especially if you do bring in the prequels. I know the prequels aren't awesome. But you take in how dark and how drastic the world gets. Especially... Bring in Rogue One. Watch Rogue One and you see just how bad the Empire was. And then you get to the end of Return of the Jedi. They defeated. The whole universe is celebrating such a victory. It's The movie is so good. But then you get the Ewoks. And I'm going to explain. Simply that weakens everything else. Because the Ewoks are cartoonish. In a movie that honestly is doing very good to be artistic. The Ewoks throw that all off. It knocks it off. It kind of, you know, it's riding this really good um, trail or whatever. It's on this really good track. But every time you see those Ewoks, a lot of times you see the Ewoks, it's kind of, it started to waver off. It started to knock it off. I mean, it keeps on board. It's still a good movie. But it definitely makes it wobbly at times. There's a little bit of turbulence. I, I know I'm mixing my metaphors here, but you get the idea. Hopefully. Now, I do know that George Lucas originally wanted to do Wookiees, and because of production issues, he was not able to do that. And I will say that if they were Wookiees in there, I think the problems would have been done away with. I think they could have definitely done it. It would have, I think it would have been just as good as Return of the, as Empire Strikes Back if you had Wookiees because Wookiees are not cartoonish. You know, they're these big warrior creatures. We see in Chewbacca. I mean, Chewbacca, you know, he's nothing we see in real life, but he's not cartoonish. And I think he would have, and you know, if you had a planet of Chewbacca's, I think it would have worked. Uh, but that's not what happened. And, you know, and I understand issues are issues and they did what they had to do. Uh, but it did it did weaken the movie. It's still a great movie. Um, still one of my favorite movies of all time. But it really does um, lessen it. Now, I go through all of that. Now to get to some thematic issues in this. Return of the Jedi has two good issues for discussion here. Now, there is definitely some philosophical, theological issues to be brought in um, for this podcast, but I'm going to straight up say that most of those issues would be better suited for a review of um, Empire Strikes Back because, yes, the whole Jedi mythology is very... Um, you know, very contrary to Christian theology um, or Christian faith, and I'll agree to that. But that doesn't come out as strongly in Return of the Jedi as it does in Empire Strikes Back or in some of the prequels. So, I am going to deal with some of the stuff that I think we could look at as Christians that I think are um, worthwhile. First off... You have this whole thing 
of the struggle of the reality that Vader is Luke's father. And, you know, the fourth commandment says, honor your father and your mother. This brings into a really good question. What do you do when your father is evil, wretched? I mean, Vader was a murderer. He did horrible things in the name of the Empire. If you watch, you know, you watch Rogue One, watch um, Revenge of the Sith, you see the horrible things that Vader did. I mean, Vader had an entire planet destroyed. You know, he was not a good man at all. So you're Luke. You learn that your father is this guy. And many people out there that you may be listening to this, you may have a father who's not a good father, who does horrible things. But yet you are commanded to honor them nonetheless. And Luke is actually a really good case study on what that is. Luke didn't say, Dad, I love you, and I'm glad you blew a plan. I said, you got to keep killing people. That's how I honor No, you don't honor the evil you do, but you still respect them. And you see that in Luke. He still honors his father. And he's fighting for his father to become a good man. He's not going to do anything evil in the name of his father. He refuses to. And we are not to do... If your, father, if your parents tell you to do something that is contrary to God's will, contrary to what God commands, you are not supposed to do it. You are under obligation to disobey, just as Luke was under obligation to disobey his father um, when he asked him to do things that were not good. But you still honored them as your father, and he did. That's why he was fighting for his father to be redeemed. And so, you know, you just look at what he does when dealing with an evil father. That's what it means to honor your father, even when they're evil and they're corrupt. It's not easy. And, you know, we're talking about him, you know, and we're talking about an adult character who could easily get away from his father. Some people are not in that situation. And, and I, I grieve for you. If your parents are abusive, get out. You know, go get help. Somebody needs to help get you out of that home because you are in danger. And that, and be honest, honor, if your parent, if your father is, or mother, are abusive, the way you honor them is by getting them help. Is by you getting help for yourself so that you can get out of that place. To a place of safety. And that they would not be tempted to the evil and sin that they are doing. When I say tempted, I'm not saying you're doing something wrong by being there. And I'm not saying you're doing something wrong by not getting help. I'm saying you do this for your sake. And do this out of love, actually, for your parents. That's why it's hard. Because they do things to you, and I know they, you probably do love them. 
you still need to get out. Now there's another aspect in this movie. Deeply Christian. I don't think it was intentional. But when Yoda is dying, he tells Luke that he has to destroy Vader. And Luke understands it the way we do. That he's going to have to take a lightsaber and drive it through the chest of Darth Vader. Or to chop his head off. Whatever. And you realize that that is not what Vader needed. What he meant. And the thing is, is why do they keep on saying that there's another Skywalker? Why is it a Skywalker? That has to defeat Vader. Is it because they're the same power? No. They did not need to physically kill him. They needed to kill Vader. To bring to life Anakin Skywalker. And the only way they could do that. is either, The only two people that could do that. Was Luke or Leia. And the reason. Is love. Because they are his children. The love he had for Padme would manifest as he sees his children. The love he has for them would slowly erode the power of the dark side and slowly kill Vader. See, wow, this is a Christian theme. Is that you read it in the scriptures that Jesus tells you that if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. Jesus is serious. But we don't really think that one through very much because, you see, your eye doesn't cause you to sin. Neither does your hand or your tongue. It's your heart. It is your very sinful nature that causes you to sin. And see, the only way to enter into heaven is the only way to be a part of the kingdom of God is to put to death that old Adam. To put to death your Darth Vader. And where does that happen? In the waters of baptism. In baptism, your old self, your old Adam, your old sinful nature is put to death. It is buried. It is killed. So that you are raised up a new creation. By the love of Jesus, poured out by his blood on the cross, covered Covering you in the waters of baptism, you are raised to a new life. It was the love of the Son, it was the love of Luke that led Luke to kill Vader and bring back to life Anakin. It is the love of Christ in the waters of baptism. 
that puts to death your sinful nature. That your new nature may be raised up. I'm not saying that's what Return of the Jedi meant to do. I don't think that's what George Lucas intended. But it's there. Intentional or not, I like it. So, <coughs> there's the review of those three awesome movies. All three of them are entertaining, good to watch, or three different franchises. And don't worry, I'm going to come back someday in another capacity, review any of these movies. I may re I'll review another Star Trek, another Harry Potter, another Star Wars, whatever it may be. So, um, I pray that this is a blessing and a joy to you. So, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. Amen. Again, I am Pastor Neil Wemus. I am soon to be the pastor at Saint, the associate pastor at St. Paul Luther Church in Ida Grove. Uh, if you live in the area, anywhere nearby, you are welcome to attend our services. We have them at 6 o'clock Saturday night and then 8 and 10.30 Sunday morning. If you do not live in the area, you can check out www.issuesetc.org, uh, www.lutheranliturgy.org, or www.lcms.org. Check out their Find a Church tabs, and you'll find a good church in your area. With that, thank you, and God bless.